RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Fizz Hydration Tablets, the convenient way to get your hydration needs vitamins and minerals covered in one easy tablet to get a discount of 20 percent, use the code sport 20 at their checkout yes welcome back to the rugby renegade podcast today is episode 65 my name is jamie bain and today you're in for a real treat because this is our velocity based training special where we interview um steve thompson a phd in in velocity based training measures uh, from sheffield hallam university um, go into all the detail on VBT, um, what it is, um, best practices, limitations of it. Um, it. It really is full of full of information um, with a training method that's that's really, really sort of coming of age. It's been around for a while, but I think there's more and more going into it. So we hear some of the latest research on it, and and tons more as well from from Steve. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, let's start by you telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning, and, and who you've worked with. Hi, Jamie. Yeah, thanks very much for for inviting me to come on and speak. Uh, it's, it's somewhat humbling to to be sort of in podcast shoulders with some of the people you've had on the past. So, so I appreciate the invitation. Um, yeah. So my background, I'd, I'd suggest, is relatively bog standard for from what, what you might expect of uh, kind of a, an academic slash S and C coach. Um, I started back in two thousand six, going on to study sport and exercise science and, and went straight through into it into an MSc um, at Sheffield Hallam University and I suppose it was my MSc that really um, really filled me with passion about sport and exercise science and, and strength and conditioning you know back then there was no S&C specialist courses there was no undergrads or, or postgrads in, in, in S&C so it was very much a generic uh, sport and exercise science course, but but I was able to specialise a little bit in S&C, and that's where I really did start to to find a passion for it. Um, following university, I took, came away, did an internship in uh, based in Nottingham with a company called Spot Nine Eight One, which was which was excellent and really helped me progress and develop as an S&C coach. And then my kind of, I suppose my career took a little bit of a turn. Um, I, I, you know, I, was, I, I needed a, a job uh, at the time and, and applied for a technician role at Hallam. My kind of my foothold into into academia really, um, and and you know my role as a technician was was really important to me because it really helped me hone my, my lab and research skills. Um, and but provided me with the freedom to carry on coaching and, and sort of developing myself from an S and C perspective as well. Um, and then you know I, as soon as my sort of tenure as a technician ended, I, I transitioned across to the the academy at Sheffield Hallam and, and, and became a lecturer and have been doing so for five or six years now. Um, but alongside that, you know, for the for the sort of the past ten years, I've been I've been coaching sort of I suppose part time, and uh, you know I've I've tried my hand in in many different sports, sort of golf, rugby, wheelchair fencing, table tennis, boxing, um, anything, any kind of sport. I've, I've I've had a little stint at it, which is which is great for me because it, it keeps things interesting. It's really helped me develop um, sort of from a wide perspective. Um, 
some really key moments for me from, from SNC would be being part of the, the GB women's volleyball support team prior to, to London 2012. Um, and then currently I'm I'm working as a kind of a co-lead SNC coach for the City of Sheffield Diving, which you know, the majority of those athletes are, are, are part of the GB setup. Um, so I've, I've had the pleasure of being able to to coach Commonwealth medalists and, and Olympic athletes, um, and uh, c- currently I'm also a, a, an SNC coach for Barnsley Football Club Academy as well, so primarily with the, the 14s and under 14s and under 15 uh, kids. Um, so and that kind of brings me to the, my main role, I suppose, which, as I've mentioned, is, is lecturer. Um, and I've, I've recently become the, the lead um, for the, our new MSc in Strength and Conditioning Coaching, which started uh, September just gone at, at Hallam. Um, and also alongside all this, I'm, I'm, I'm undertaking a, a PhD, which uh, it focuses on velocity-based training, which is obviously going to be what we spend most of our time talking about uh, today. Yeah, well, obviously, ton, tons of experience, and it's really nice having that balance of the academic and also the, the hands-on coaching stuff. So, it'd be really interesting to get your point of view on on velocity-based training. So, let's let's get straight into it. What is velocity-based training in a nutshell? I guess. Um, yeah. So, velocity-based training is it, it's been around for, for years and years and years, decades probably. Um, people, you know, coaches have been have been measuring velocity during resistance training for a long time and, and it's, it's only really over the past maybe five six years that it's really become kind of this new popularized sexy approach to training and i think probably the main reason for that is through um the developments in technology so so back you know in the 80s and 90s and and, and 2000s you were the, the technology was quite limited um but over the past maybe decade um the developments in technology and the amount of devices that have come on the market have, have made velocity-based training so much more accessible, and I think that's what's driven the the popularity in it um, sort of over the past few years. And for me, so the the, the name velocity-based training was was actually coined um, by a US SNC coach called Brian Mann a, a, a fair few years ago. Um, and it's kind of just stuck this this term velocity-based training. And again, I think the 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 manufacturers, the, the technological companies, have kind of jumped on that term and marketed it and, and made it what it is today. Um, and I think that's that's both a really good thing, but can be a little bit of a hindrance as well. Um, because for me, velocity-based training is basically any any form of training that utilizes the measurement of velocity. Um, so when we talk about the, the measurement of velocity, basically we're talking about the, or generally we talk about the, the, the measurement of barbell velocity over concentric phase of uh, an exercise or a lift, and that the main two types of velocities that we would measure is mean, so that's the um, mean velocity across the concentric phase, or peak velocity, which is kind of that instantaneous um, peak uh, in velocity over that same phase, so that concentric phase. Um, so for me, DBT is actually a bit more of a, an umbrella term. It's not really a, a type of training because it covers so many different things. Um, 
it's very difficult to to really determine what a VBT program is because it's quite a generalized term. Um, so for me, you, you, you kind of got a number of different things that fall under this term of velocity-based training. You've got um, load velocity profiling, you've got the use of velocity to manipulate load um, on a sessional or set-by-set -set basis. You've also got the use of velocity to help regulate fatigue through this idea of velocity loss. Um, and, and I think you, you can also stretch it as far as kind of using it as a, a bit more of a um, qualitative motivational tool um, to build that kind of um, healthy competitive environment within a within a training uh, setting and essentially VBT or, or, or the measurement of velocity is just is based on the principle of the load velocity relationship which is analogous to the force velocity relationship which was theorized you know right at the start of the 1900s and it's very very simply it's the it's the relationship between load and velocity which seems to be inverse and linear or maybe slightly curvilinear and that again well just like the force velocity relationship is based on the the crossbridge cycling and the interaction between actin and myosin and, and how those interactions will reduce as the speed or the velocity of a movement increases um, and you know the a lot of the earlier research sort of towards the the start of the the decade, this decade that's just gone, um, from different Spanish researchers, uh, primarily has shown some showed some really really strong relationships between load and velocity, which has enabled researchers like myself to really take hold of that that idea and see how far we can get with it. Um, so I think yeah, VBT is it's very much a, an intern, but I think it can be quite confusing, certainly for those maybe not in the area. Um, and, and I think you can look at it from many different angles and different facets. Yeah, and I think you've you've touched on a few um, different different ways of using it, and, and that's my next question is because I imagine most people out there understand, you know, velocity based training as measuring the the speed of movement for power exercises for so for developing power. So could you go into a bit more detail on what the the other ways of using VBT are, whether it's you know, predicting one RMs or auto regulation of training, things like that. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I think I think you kind of you hit the nail on the head a little bit there, in the sense that that VBT has has always been thought of as this this tool for developing power. And you know, if we if we define power as kind of the that typical final block of training uh, prior to competition, or the 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 sessions that you might have on a on a weekly basis, if we're talking you know more team sports that really try to utilize those faster velocity, explosive ballistic type exercises. Um, I suppose that you kind of, your, your, your thoughts or your, um, your mindset automatically goes to power training VBT going hand in hand. But, but again, that that's quite misleading because the application of, of velocity during training can be done across any, type of training, any block of training, um, and actually with many different types of athletes. And, you know, I, I remember seeing um, on Twitter not too long ago, uh, maybe last year, um, talking about how there almost need to be prerequisites before utilizing VBT. So a little bit like you, know, you need to have certain strength levels to, be, to really utilize and maximize 
biometric training, for example, um, there was the thought process that it was similar to, to, to utilizing VBT. But I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think the kind of the four, the four main approaches that I mentioned uh, earlier are the are the the key to to, to velocity based training. So um, I, I I like to think about kind of an an SNC's coach's role, certainly from a prescriptive basis, three different um, main aspects. You've got the testing and the monitoring, you've got the, the, the load prescription, and then you've got that regulation of fatigue and volume. And within those three areas, you can, you can sort of slip in velocity-based training or uh, the measurement of velocity quite nicely. So you've got, with the testing and the monitoring, you can start to develop uh, a load velocity profile, which is again very simply is is pretty much a one rm it's an incremental test um a heavy or the heaviest load that somebody can lift in you know sensible increments um so that could be 10 percent, could be five percent could be 20 percent, dependent on time logistics at the uh, number of athletes that you've got to profile etc um and then you can you can utilize the the measurement of velocity from that profile in, in many different ways. And I think one of the most potential uh, sort of exciting ways to use is through this manipulation of load. And I think in order to really understand how it works, I think kind of the critiquing current um, methods is, is quite important. So, you know, currently we would, we would prescribe load through undertaking a 1RM and then prescribing percentages of that 1RM or potentially a repetition maximum um, in terms of rep ranges throughout a 4, 6, 8, 12 week intervention and then we probably retest. Now what that doesn't do or what that, that struggles to do is take into account the everyday changes in, in strength and fatigue. So if we take a rugby player, for example, you know, they've got technical training, um, they've got travel, they've got sleep, they've got nutrition, they've got um, maybe supplements, they've got lots of uh, sort of confounding extraneous variables that might affect their ability to step into a gym and really hit their maximums on a consistent basis. Uh, and then coupled with that, you've got the fact that that athletes will get stronger if you put together a, a really clear and appropriate intervention. The, an athlete is going to get stronger and it's not going to happen right at the end of that six weeks. It's going to happen gradually throughout. So if you're still utilizing the, um, the initial baseline 1RM, then prescribing loads that account to uh, an 85% 1RM are going to start to um, be less effective because they're not hitting that right kind of stress. Um, and it's and, and the, your strength levels will change. Therefore, your the knock-on effect to all the relative loads uh, will change as well. Um, and that's going to have a knock-on effect to the adaptation that might might be elicited you know, and might kind of promote within the athletes. Um, so the idea of kind of manipulating load through through velocity is to target a velocity as opposed to target a load. So if we know for someone's 85% that their velocity is uh, 0.6 for example then instead of targeting absolute load on the bar we can say well, we want you to work at 0.6 for this particular uh, lift uh, for this particular day 
and we're going to make sure that the absolute load, so the kilograms on the bar, matches that 0.6 meters per second if we're talking mean velocity. And, and that, I think, provides a real flexibility and a real um, sort of reactiveness to all these different extraneous variables that I've mentioned and allows um, coaches and athletes to really really be in tune with the bodies and, and hopefully optimize prescription on a, on a regular basis. Um, and I think, sorry, it's been quite a long answer, but I think <laughs> that the final, uh, the final sort of area or, or, or um, direction you can take velocity, which is maybe a little bit more simple than, than the other two methods, is this idea of volume control and fatigue management. And, and a simple method to do that would be um, defining a velocity loss or a velocity cutoff. So let's say, for example, you, you want to focus more on strength developments than hypertrophy. You might decide to work at a 10% or a 20% cutoff in velocity. What I mean by that is from the start of the, of the set, um, as long as those repetitions are the, the, the velocity and the effort and the intent are maximized for each repetition, instead of saying, um, or instead of prescribing a, a set of six, you'll simply prescribe a volume of 20% cutoff in velocity. And again, that sh the, the theory behind this is that it should be in tune with um, the kind of how your neuromuscular system's feeling and allows you to regulate volume and and um, regulate fatigue a little bit more effectively and hopefully a little bit more accurately and allow for um, a better training environment and, and hopefully uh, more appropriate adaptations. Yeah, it's brilliant stuff. Very, very well explained. Um, you know, aside from the fact of improving the kind of training through using velocity, you've got those logistical issues in, in rugby and other team sports where testing is, is quite difficult to do in season. Um, and, and also yeah. like have, having, having performed programs where you're you know, doing the same exercise every day. What you find, what you notice from that is that some days you perform amazingly and on other days when you expect to perform well, um, you don't. Um, so it just shows those those day-to-day -day rhythms in your body that, you know, they're un unpredictable and hard to hard to measure. Whereas if you've got a, a velocity measure, it, it just adapts the program on the fly rather than kind of, you know, just sort of guessing a, a, a rep range or a load. So it's, it's really yeah. interesting stuff. Um, now you you mentioned uh, mean velocity and peak velocity. Um, what what are the sort of benefits of either or, or, or why would you use one over the other? And are there any uh, any things looking at kind of rate of force development? Do any of the the um, the new uh, bits of technology actually measure that? Because obviously that's that's something that's important to develop as well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, in terms of the, the the two different types of velocity. Um, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here and, and sort of say that I'm not a fan of peak velocity. Um, so some of the research that I've done through the university as, as part of my PhD has, has found that peak velocity is, isn't as reliable as, as potentially mean velocity is. And even so traditionally or, or when kind of um, velocity-based training really became popular there was the the thought process that mean velocity should be um preferred for strength-based exercises because you're looking at the velocity across a concentric full concentric phase and it gives you a a real picture around what that 
athlete is capable of. You know, are they a grinder, for example? Can they get the heavy loads and can they really move that nice and slowly and still successfully complete the lift? Or are they someone that's a lot sort of twitchier? You know, do they have a, a more reactive ballistic makeup and, and, and therefore, you know, they're, they're never going to be hitting those real slow velocities because they just bottom out. Um, and, and therefore, peak velocity was aimed more at the, um, you know, your power training, as, as we've already discussed. So plyometrics, Olympic lifting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I find peak velocity, because it's that one instantaneous moment of velocity, if your athletes are not consistent, um, then you can get these little, these odd sort of spikes. And that concerns me a little bit, no matter what the, the exercise is. So from a personal perspective, I'm, I'm kind of not saying that people shouldn't use peak velocity. Um, but from a personal perspective, I would probably, nine times out of ten, I would focus on mean velocity, whatever the, the exercise um, is that we're, we're prescribing. Um, and that, I think, again, is maybe a, a, a reason for VBT being appropriate across a whole greater spectrum than, than just for its kind of power training. Um, and then in terms of rate of force development, the, from my understanding of the technology that's out there, it's it's something that, that potentially might be coming, um, but there's not really any uh, any devices that measure that. And I, I think it would be difficult to do so because rate of force development in the, in the way that it needs to be calculated properly um, is, is quite unreliable. And there's quite a lot of research out there that shows that measuring rate of force development um, across many different kind of um, statistical ways um, is quite unreliable and adding kind of to the mix uh, ballistic exercises or movements that, uh, you know, non-isometric exercises, um, I wonder how accurate that, that measure of rate of force development would be from, um, you know, from a barbell um, linear position transducer or from a, a piece of wearable technology like a um, uh, an IMU for example um, so yeah I'm not aware of any and I would be surprised if any any companies really go down that route um, but you never know it might happen yeah. okay and, and going back to what you're saying about obviously um, you know some people are, are grinders and some people are more fast twitch are, are there any good ways using VBT to to kind of ascertain a, a you know fiber type makeup of a player um good question um i think i think yes yes and no i would suggest that you could probably from a from a, well it might be more of a psychological aspect really in terms of grinders um i think you know i've uh, have been able to grind out heavy squats at 0.1 meters per second which is you know it honestly looks like they're stuck in that in that sticking point for about three minutes and it you know it looks disgusting but they managed to get through it um whether that would really transfer across to someone's um fiber type makeup um i would be skeptical but i think what it does do is it provides you with a real indication as to how well you how far you can push somebody and maybe helps you tailor the training a little bit so you know if someone is if you think somebody you have an athlete who you think could be a lot stronger than they are and, and potentially 
they are bottoming out at, at some really quite high velocities, then that might provide you with a picture to, to sort of emphasize heavier training and even not necessarily slower training because I wouldn't want to encourage my athletes to, to, to move particularly slow. Um, but I think just focusing some time towards those heavier, uh, more grindy reps would, would help from a physiological adaptation perspective, but from that psychological perspective of being able to, to do that. You know, we've all been there where we've, we're looking at a, a load on a bar and we think, I don't know if I've got this. And it's only until you get to the bottom of that squat or you know whatever it might be, and and start to move through, you, you know whether you can do it or not. So I think potentially there's there's that aspect um, from a psychological perspective that you could utilise it for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and like I say, it might be a an indicator that they might need to do more being able to maintain tension in those in those lifts. Like for example, if you've got a prop, that's part of their game, being able to maintain tension in that sort of position. So it might be you direct their training more down towards that stuff before doing explosive stuff. So it's, yeah, it's it's just another way of, of getting information about your players, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we kind of touched on the kind of logistics of um, you know, club and rugby environments. How how are teams and clubs applying VBT to their programmes? Um yeah, so I think from, from my experience, there is a, a, a massive spectrum of kind of implementation across different teams and clubs. Um, and I think, to be honest, probably those that utilize it the best, and this might be because of the, the resource, the logistics, and the amount of staff that they have, uh, kind of your university, uh, sorry, your, your American colleges, um, you know, they really know how to utilize VBT and how to implement it properly. Um, but I think... If we're talking kind of UK teams, from my the majority of teams that that I'm aware of that utilise VBT, so we're maybe talking more football than we are rugby, because uh, that's kind of where my experiences lie at the moment. Um, is very quite simply, so it might be to take some some normative data, so it might be to take some zones or. You know, I'm sure most of your listeners will have will have seen the the different zones, um, max strength, strength speed, speed strength, uh, and, and speed, and the corresponding velocity zones that that sort of set to them that um, you know some of these technology companies have, have put together. I think they're okay, and I think a lot of teams will use that um, because it's quick and it's easy. Um, my concern with that, and, and I would always advise that if if teams and coaches have the time and the resource uh, to be able to do so, that you either create your own individual zones for your own athletes, or you at the very least create a club or a positional zone um, or sort of profile that has those corresponding zones for your athletes. I think again from my own research that I've put together we we found that the the load velocity profile itself is very very individual um you know we've we've had at certain certainly the heavier loads we've had variation between you know like-minded I'm sorry uh, participants with a very similar background so strength trained to a certain level competitive uh, weightlifters to to a regional level we found that there was variation of around 20 to 30 percent in the velocities at specific relative uh, relative loads. 
you know, so for example, at 90% 1RM in a back squat, there might have been 20-30% difference in the velocities that these athletes were, were these participants were, were putting out. And I think that to me shows that where possible, we really need to be encouraged creating their own profiles, creating um, whether that is in, on an individual basis, but that obviously takes a lot of time, um, or on a, a, a more team basis. And interestingly, there was um, a piece of research that came out probably back end of last year um, from a good friend of mine over at University of Lincoln, who actually showed he he's uh, sorry he's comparing um, individual versus group based zones um, I, I tell a lie it's not out yet it is coming out though I think very shortly um, and he actually found that there was there was not an awful lot of difference which is quite promising I think for coaches and um, and organizations and teams that don't have the time to really set individualized zones and individualized profiles that maybe you can take a few players profile them create the zones from from that way and then utilize that across the whole team um so i think that's probably the most common way in which certainly uk based uh clubs are, are using velocity to to kind of use those zones that have already been described um but i think certainly a, a very common um or, or effective approach that that should be utilized is simply from a, an athlete buy-in and this idea of developing a competitive, healthy environment. So, you know, I know of some clubs that are, that are basically creating leaderboards and asking the players to start to chase the speeds instead of chasing the loads. Now, I'm sure in rugby that might not be uh, a, too big of an issue because, you know, the majority of, of rugby players, they love being in the gym, they love chasing heavy loads and they love you know, getting underneath a bar. But in, in other sports, um, I've found that that's, that's obviously not always the case. And by giving them velocity targets and getting them to move faster um, and not necessarily worry about the load that's on the bar, or at least, as we've already mentioned, use that velocity to auto-regulate. So give them a, a target and let them figure out what should be on the bar to hit that particular zone or that particular velocity target. Um, I've I found and, and I've, I've been told from, from from other coaches at different different clubs that it can be very very effective and and the you know the, the athletes come in and the they're, they're quite excited to 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 get on the leaderboard and chase some of those velocities. Um, I think all that needs to be done safely and it needs to be done effectively. Um, it's not necessarily a case of just chucking a, a device on a bar or on a, on a human and saying, right, go and move something as quick as you possibly can. I think there needs to be some prerequisites in terms of competency and, and training age to be able to do that safely. Um, but, you know, if they're in the right club setting, then I think that they'll, that, that shouldn't be really an issue. Um, and, and just to give you a little example that, that I've used in the past. So as I mentioned, uh, myself and another member of staff at, at, at Hallam University, uh, we work with the city of Sheffield diving on a regular basis. And um, we essentially what we do on a before the start of every gym session is we will give them a, a, a wearable device and we will stick either a 20k bar on the back or maybe even a, just a, a light wooden dowel. And we'll get them to do a couple of sets of, of five um, 
camera movement jumps and we'll measure the speed and we'll measure the velocity and we can then use that to track um, improvements we can then use that to track and if anyone is a bit broken and, and we have some real drop-offs um, but again importantly and, and, and um, it was really nice to see was that the athletes then started to chase it and it actually became a bit more of a training stimulus because they wanted the fastest velocities they wanted to jump higher and it created a really nice environment for them to work in and, and bounce off each other um, and I think that's there's some some real benefit and, and, and some real sort of bang for your buck in, in implementing this type of training um, within those kind of environments it's, it's simple it's easy and it, and it can be really effective Jamie, you're there. I lost you. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. There. <laughs> no uh, yeah, my my experience of um, you know athletes are competitive by nature. So if you can make the training competitive, um, you tend to get a lot more out of them. And even to the point where I've I've gone away in some cases of doing um, more individual loads for like for jump squats, for example. I just get the similar groups of players on the yeah. same weight, so they're competing for the velocity as opposed to. Um, you know, having different different weights and just competing with themselves. Um, uh, yeah, they they love it. It, it just builds a, a really good atmosphere. Uh, I think your your answer um, also touched on, like you said, it's got to be the right environment where they've they've got a good training history and and good technique. So, um, my next question would be kind of a negative note, I guess. Is are, are there any limitations to velocity based tra training? Yeah, um, I, I like to think of it more of maybe considerations than limitations, but yeah. um, <laughs> I think I think yeah, costs are like like any approach to to anything that we do as S and C coaches. There's always considerations and limitations, and I think there are, there are a few key ones that that I certainly want to want to pick up on here um, from a from a logistical perspective. Um, the, the 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 initial hope from VBT was that it would take away the need to run our M test and it would really become uh, very time efficient for big clubs. Now, the, for me, the research doesn't really work in, in favor of that. So in order to do a load velocity profile, we kind of need a decent number of, um, of increments or a decent number of loads to, to really get a, a clear and, and a, a, an accurate um, profile profile that we can utilize and you know I know you mentioned earlier about 1RM predictions and unfortunately at the moment the research is uh, isn't great around 1RM predictions so that that idea of being able to step into a gym do a few lifts at some different speeds plot the kind of the profile plot the the regression equation and predict your 1RM and then work backwards to, to readjust loads maybe doesn't work in that respect um, you know there are definite ways in which we can manipulate load like that but that would require a full profile and working up to up to one RM right. um, which maybe does take away some of that that initial time efficiency of, 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 of VBT um, I think other couple of a couple of other things related to the the profile itself is we've already mentioned that it that ideally it's an individualized relationship so Again, that could add to, to the time, um, and there is there is some research, including my own, that has shown that those very very heavy loads, so one RM, um, the the reliability of velocity up there 
isn't great as well. Now that could be because, you know, if you're moving somebody, uh, if somebody's moving a bar at 0.2 meters per second, then if they then move it at 0.22, well that's a 10% difference. So from a statistical perspective, that, that looks massive, but actually it's 0.02 of a meter per second, and uh, you know, I'd be very happy if I had that kind of levels of consistency. So sometimes the research maybe doesn't quite ring true from a statistical perspective as to the what's happening right up at those heavy loads. But I think there is also, um, you know, this notion of if you have a grinder and you have a competent lifter, that when you get up to one RM, the the technique and the thought process behind that lift kind of goes out the window, and it's a case of I'm going to get this bar up in whatever way possible. So if that changes some of the you know the kinematics of of the movement on the descent, that's going to have a knock-on effect to some of the you know body positioning on the on the ascent. And that could affect, obviously, velocity. So it's bearing in mind some of those um, reliability issues at those heavier loads. Um, and I think then the final thing is kind of, it's very specific. So unfortunately, um, there's, there's no real transference across devices. So if you have a, a gym aware, for example, and then you want to then require a push, the the data doesn't really transfer across to, from one to the other. So if you're going to utilize VBT, do some research on the device that you want to use um, and then stick to that device. Uh, I think that's, that's really important that you stick to the same device. Um, and then the, the final thing is that the, the profile itself, the relationship between load and velocity is very much exercise specific as well. So if you're, you know, if you're providing zones for a deadlift, those zones are not going to transfer across to a back squat. So, from that perspective, it's it's a, it's a case of maybe only utilizing DBT for the really important key lifts. And um, you know, likelihood is that would be a back squat, that might be a deadlift, it might be a bench press, it might be an Olympic lift. And I think making sure you how you can profile and how you can then implement DBT into your training is really really important because. There's, there's absolutely no point in profiling a, a bicep curl. We don't need to know how fast we can do that. We, they're the, the auxiliary exercises that, that complement our training, but where DBT could be important, it could be effective, is those key lifts. So I think it's a case of really having clear the, the, the rationale for implementing DBT and, and the exercises that you want to implement it with. Yeah, I think you're right. And going back to what you said about the the different clubs um, sort of need the need to develop their own kind of profiles and and velocity um, sort of targets for different exercises. And what you you mentioned there is that my experience of different different rugby clubs. You know, they all squat differently. Some will box squat, some will free squat, some will um, you know squat to a lot higher higher range. Um, so to use the same velocity measure, you know. When you know that it's going to be a different squatting technique, yeah. uh, you need you need to adapt it to your environment. So, all all good points there. And you mentioned a few devices there, and that's that's my next question: is what what are the options for, um, you know, your your amateur rugby players and, and athletes um, to in, incorporate VBT into their training? Okay, yeah. So, um, the, in terms of devices, there's there's oh, probably fifty plus on the market, if not more. Now, it's it's really taken off. And there are obviously some really good ones and there are obviously some not so good ones. And I, I try not to sort of hang my hat on any. I try to be a uh, sort of a, a researcher that is unbiased. 
Um, but in terms of um, the types of technology that's out there, you've got linear position transducers, which is kind of your gym aware type um, device. You've got uh, inertial measurements units, which IMUs, which are kind of your wearable technologies like push um, and bar sen- uh, sorry, push and B sensor, for example. And you have uh, ca- camera systems, which are off- often a little bit more expensive, but um, very effective because there's no need to attach to a bar or attach to the human. They can be set up and you can do whatever you need to. Um, and we've also got iPhone applications now. And actually, there are some really good iPhone apps. You know, obviously, smartphone technology is, is so advanced nowadays that that you can do some really great stuff, some really good tracking of barbells and, and get some really good measurements out of, you know, a, a £9.99 app, for example. Um, and, I, and I think the, the fact that there are so many devices out there is, again, a, a, a help but also a hindrance because it's very difficult to kind of decipher through all that noise of which is the best device to go for. Um, so I think if if you have access to it, if if you're looking to to buy a device, please jump on some of the research first. Look at the reliability. Look at the data. Make sure that what you're getting is is appropriate. Um, obviously, assess the practicalities. Obviously, assess the the um, logistics, the the cost. Um, all associated with these devices, and then make a, make an informed decision. Um, ask for some advice. Ask find people on social media that are, that are using the devices and get their opinions as well. Um, but I think in terms of the the kind of the average gym goer or the average athlete that that wants to maybe get a little bit more out the training, maybe try something different. I think um, utilizing velocity based training in in its simplest form can be very effective and it's kind of going back to this idea of um, just setting a, a simple target. So, you know, if we take kind of one of the simplest or most common laws of physics, which is Newton's second law, force equals mass times acceleration, and if we assume that in order for someone to be stronger, they need to be able to increase the amount of force that they can produce. So in order to do that, from that equation, we have to change two things, or one of two things. We need to increase the mass, which would be the load on the bar, or we need to increase the acceleration or the, the the speed at which we move something or can move something across a time point. So if we pr- provide, uh, or if, if an athlete then wants to make some provide some simple targets, they could essentially just simply look to see if they can move the same mass faster. So you put together a training intervention, start and end, uh, could be 100k. If you can move that faster at the end, then we can probably suggest that, you, that that something has been effective and you've got stronger. Or similarly, if you can move um, a heavier mass at the same speed, same velocity, same acceleration. Yeah, definitely. I think it's very simple, but again, it's very, very. You, sorry, you're still there. So... Yeah, still got. Yeah. Sorry, I think that's all right. Yeah, Wi-Fi's a bit dodgy. No, um, yeah, great, great point. And I think it just highlights, I'd imagine a lot of a lot of trainers would be just trying to increase the load. Um, yeah. So it's, it's highlighting the important to yeah, increase the velocity as well. Over time, you want to increase both. So you're lifting heavier weight and you're doing faster. That's that's the kind of the long-term goal. So it's a great point. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Now, uh, <clears throat> where where do you see? Obviously, you're doing research yourself, so this would be really interesting to see where where do you see the practice of, of VBT going and and or changing, and, and and what are the sort of things that you want to look at moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me, and I think this is probably common consensus here that we just we simply don't know enough about VBT. Um, it's it's kind of come from this traditional um, reverse approach that seems to happen in strength and conditioning that something will be done in practice for quite a long time and then it'll somehow trickle its way into the research to see how effective it really is and I think that research is now trying to and it, it still needs to catch up with what's happening in practice so I think over the next three four five years I think simply we just need to learn more about it what's effective what's not effective and how can we um, improve and, and perfect some of the approaches that um, I think uh, we, we probably need to look at a better way to to profile so I've kind of mentioned some of those pitfalls around logistics time consu- uh, consumption and, and that kind of thing I think we really need to try and develop a, a reliable and a robust method but that isn't as time consuming as undertaking a 1RM and hopefully that could incorporate that 1RM prediction um, that, that unfortunately at the moment isn't quite there in, in, the, in the research. Um, I think a really important look, sort of uh, focus in the research would be to look at the stability of the profile over, uh, over the course, sort of longitudinally. So if we are adjusting uh, somebody's strength at maximal strength over the course of a season, let's say every six weeks their their strength increases by 10 to 15 percent, you know, dependent on what kind of training they're doing. Do and we readjust the absolute loads to the relative loads. Do the velocities at those relative loads do they remain stable or do they change with training as well? And, and we don't really know that. And I think if we do know that, that'll allow us to determine how often we then need to profile. And if we can get away with profiling someone the start of the season and then let's say Christmas time, then actually that profile becomes a lot more uh, usable and and uh, easier to implement within these time-consuming uh, environments. But until we know that, it's, it's difficult to make those assumptions. So it's, it's kind of, you know, we're still reliant on every six weeks when we would want RM, well, let's low velocity profile because we're not quite sure how stable that is. Um, and then I think finally that we just we need to do more intervention studies. T- to date, there is there is only three that I'm aware of that have done a true velocity based uh, loading or velocity based training intervention that have utilized it in the ways that I've kind of described it previously and that's obviously that's that's where I'm going to end up with my my PhD is to to put together a, a hopefully a, a very uh, practically applied and robust training intervention that utilizes VBT compare that against a, a more traditional percentage-based um, intervention and and we'll see what happens see see where the differences lie there between the two I don't think there's going to be massive differences I don't think you're going to suddenly get an extra 20% on your squat from VBT but I think what it might do is it might help you to to refine the way that you control volume and 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 hopefully look at how 
um, you know, can we in- improve strength the same amount, but by doing less volume, which I think would be very, very advantageous to many team sports out there, um, being able to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. That, that'll be really interesting and look forward to, to hearing about that when, as and when you do it. Um, so next next question we ask all the guests on the podcast. Um, so feel free to draw from all your knowledge, obviously not just rugby players, but what is the what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? In your perspective, if that's all right, sort of thinking athletes and coaches. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm going to stay on, I'm going to stay on kind of the, the, the trend of VBT because I think currently um, one of the biggest issues and 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 I think this is this has come from the marketing and the of the devices and the way that they've been promoted is that SNC coaches seem to feel like VBT is this holy grail of of of, of provision it's it's the one tool that everybody needs and it's the only thing that we need and and that's just not it, it that can't be the case it's like anything. Um, it's it's an additional tool. It's a way to to monitor, track, manipulate, but we still shouldn't be forgetting the other approaches. So, you know, very simple example. I'm not suggesting that a low velocity profile should completely replace the one RM test because the one RM test has been established for years and and is very reliable and is very appropriate. But what the low velocity profile can and potentially should do is complement it. So the earlier stages of a one RM simply stick on a, a device, track the, the velocity of those lighter loads, and then build that profile. Um, so I think, and I suppose it's not just VBT, but I think it's from a coaching perspective, it's making sure that you um, you have lots of different tools that you can really play on and, and really implement. And I suppose from a, from a, a player's perspective as well, it's, it's, it's being open to suggestions being open to new things, new approaches, and trying different things because there's there's probably something out there that's that you haven't tried that could be really really effective for you personally, and I think that's really important to to try and keep keep that open mind when it comes to strength and conditioning and try new and, and different things wherever possible to to really build a, a picture on what's what's effective and, and what isn't. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, we'll try and get you away from the velocity-based training uh, okay. discussion there and just pull on your experience from, from you know, practical and, and your academic background. And, and what is, um, or what do you think some of the, the other interesting research that's coming out around strength and conditioning? Yeah, so having a, doing a PhD in, VB, in, in velocity-based uh, training is, kind of does focus your your reading to that particular area um but recently i've been i was asked to to write a a sort of a small article for a new um journal that's coming out based in the uk Uh, it's the international university strength and conditioning association and they're producing a journal and i was contacted by the kind of the editor and 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 they asked me to write a a bridge in the gap kind of um article looking at how can we better uh, allow researchers and, and practitioners to collaborate and bridge that gap between between sort of research and practice and as I was writing that it was I was kind of looking at maybe the journey of, of some of the SNC research across the past 20 years or, or whatever and it was a it was really nice to see that 
a lot of the research has, has started to really try to become practically applied, and I think that's really important. Um, so you, you've got additional sections now in research that have practical applications where the, the researchers try to communicate and disseminate their findings for a way in which the coach can, can utilize. But on the flip side of that, the, the, the research process is still very, very traditional and very it takes a lot of time and there are certain boxes that need to be ticked in order to get a piece of research published. And I think that that does really uh, provide this gap between research and practice and um, and, and prevents the, the real application of the research in an applied setting. And when I was writing this article, uh, I was starting to kind of read around this idea of developing case studies. And it's something that I think a lot of journals are going to start to move towards. And I think it's something that can be, be really uh, utilized because it can allow for some, some strong collaborations. You can sort of implement a research into a training environment. They can help with the, the robustness and reliability of the data that's being collected. But that data doesn't have to sort of meet as many criteria as it would do if it was a um, a piece of primary research, the traditional uh, journal article, if you will. So I think, for me, the development of, of case study articles and research is, is is quite exciting, and I think can be really, really effective uh, moving forwards. Uh, that are really trying to utilise the research, but maybe are struggling a little bit. You know, I know from when, from the times that I've coached certainly before I really got into research, I found it very difficult to translate the, the research into practice because you've got so many different moving parts. It's so multifaceted is, is, is by practice that the research just often doesn't fit in there. Whereas I think case studies can be, can be really, um, really useful and can be a, a really effective method of, 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 as I've mentioned, sort of bridging that gap. Um, so I think for me that's, that's kind of a really interesting development in SNC. Um, I think probably one of the, the other one that I maybe mention is is um, I've been lucky enough to do to, to, to sort of spend a bit of time and, and collaborate with uh, a member of staff uh, at the University of Chichester called Jason Lake, and I've seen him speak a couple of times, and he, he talks about the utilisation of force plate data and the way he does the way he kind of talks about it and, and, and implements it. Is, is quite different. So it's it's utilizing data that you can get from a force plate to actually paint a picture of how somebody moves and how somebody jumps, if we're gonna use that as an example. So it's not just looking at jump height and force. You might look at range of motion, you might look at impulse, you might look at um, a number of different metrics that helps to build a picture of how that athlete actually works and, and moves and provides a coach with um, some really key information that could then help tailor training effectively. So it's not just a case of we want them to jump higher. We now need to utilize strategy um, the way in which they they uh, perform a task and implement that into into training and, and into coaching. Um, and I think that's that's really cool for me as a you know as a as a bit of a geek when it comes to this kind of thing. That to me is really interesting. Um, it might not be to, to many SNC coaches out there, but but I think that's that's quite a cool way of looking at u- utilizing force plate data. Yeah, that's interesting stuff, and um, yeah, definitely the case studies are, are all stuff that I've 
I found very valuable from the research side of it, but also a kind of snapshot and, and a look at what other people are doing um, from the practical side of it. So that's great stuff. What um, Next question, uh, what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach and are there any books or resources you'd recommend? Um, yeah, so in terms of in terms of advice, uh, I can I suppose I get that question quite a lot. But being a being the the course leader of, a, of an MSc in strength and conditioning, um, you know, we I deal with a lot of students that have decided they want to undertake a career in, in strength and conditioning, and, and and often ask, you know, what's the best? What's your advice? What's the best approach? And I think for me, it's a case of of developing a passion, uh, immersing yourself in an environment trying things out, trying to get your head in the research and understand um, understand S&C approaches and, and, and as much as you possibly can. I think finding a mentor is really, really important and um, being able to spend time with, with people that are, that are established, that are really effective in strength and condition is, is, is so key as well. Um, and, you know, so I think really really importantly and often forgotten in snc is the fact that, that we are coaches and that, that strength and conditioning coaching is a is you know somewhat of an art and i think if you can't coach and this is going to sound very cliche but if you can't coach then you can write the best program in the world but it's never going to be effective so i think actually yes spend time uh perfecting your ability to prescribe and to test and collect good data but also don't don't neglect the fact that coaching is a is relationship building it's building trust uh, and it's it's being able to communicate it's being able to be in a, an environment with lots of different people and feel comfortable and get those people ticking off one another or or, or maybe off themselves um, and i think in terms of finally in terms of that that advice would be think a little bit wider as well than just elite sport um, so, you know, on our masters, we try to encourage our students to uh, think more sort of left field, if you will. So, think about the public sector, S and C, in the public sector for the elderly, for lifestyle diseases, for youth obesity, for example. Um, and there's 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 an emerging area here where um, Public sector companies and organisations are crying out for S and C coaches, but a lot of up and coming S and C coaches are so hell bent on getting into elite sport, which I think is brilliant, and uh, you know I don't criticise that at all. But I think just having an open mind on the different directions that you can take with S and C is really, really important, and um, can really open the door to 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 careers for 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 coaches. Um, and then finally, in terms of books. Uh, Again, I'm going to go a little bit different, and I'm actually going to. I think for me, listening to podcasts like this um, and, and other podcasts that are out there, reading blog posts and, and talking to practitioners is so much more effective than sticking your head in, you know, the essentials of strength training and conditioning. Um, so I would always encourage that that up and coming coaches listen to podcasts just like this one um, and <clears throat> and and start to build uh, networks with practitioners and and try and have conversations as opposed to just getting bogged down by the theory and the principles. Um, it's interesting that when I was writing my um, the, the article on Bridging the Gap, I, I came across a paper that, that actually found that 
um, they, they interviewed 320 different S&C coaches and found that 1.8% of the information and their development came from journal articles, whereas 41% came from talk, simply talking and conversations with other practitioners. And I think that's quite powerful um, to, to maybe move away from that traditional way of learning and, and, and gaining knowledge and information and, and maybe start to think a little bit more contemporary, uh, like I mentioned, with podcasts just like, just like this one. Yeah, definitely great advice. And, and going back to your, your earlier answers, it's, it's a common common theme from the guests we have on. It's those those soft skills of coaching and relationship building. Um, you know, developing buy-in for your players and squad. Um, they're so important. And yeah, like you say, without those, you can have the best program in the world, but you know, it won't get up and running without that. So, some some great advice there. Uh, lastly, Steve, where can people learn more about you? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of I'm on social media. I, I, I'll hold my hands up and say I'm not the best, um, but I am on social media. So probably the best place to, to catch me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle's Steve three eight one. Always happy to to sort of link up with like minded people, have conversations. Um, I'll always reply to to any messages that that get sent my way. Um, and such is life at the moment. I seem to be spending a lot of my time on Skypes and Zooms and stuff. So more than happy to to jump on on something like that with anybody that's interested. Um, so yeah, I'd say Twitter's probably the best the best option. Awesome, and we'll share share links to your Twitter account uh, in, in the show notes. But uh, lastly, Steve, thank you uh, for coming and talking about this. Obviously, VBT is a, a very it's a very in topic at the moment and it's great to have some of your experience with it to kind of give us the the information about it and I know um, you were down to speak more about it at our conference which unfortunately we've had to postpone because of COVID but um, yeah we're, we're hoping um, when we get the date for, for 2021 you'll you'll be able to stay involved um, and it'd be great for people to kind of pick your brains more about the topic. Absolutely yeah count me in for that definitely definitely still keen to to be involved in that conference it's a it's a really great thing that you're doing so yeah count me in and, and it's been a pleasure thanks very much for having me on the podcast awesome thanks steve cheers jamie so there you have it hopefully everything you need to know about velocity based training um thanks steve for coming on the podcast and talking to us about it some tons of tons of great information there uh, much appreciated and all the best for the future in the meantime guys please subscribe to us on soundcloud stitcher itunes tuners spotify whatever you use for podcasts and of course give us a five-star review and keep checking us out on the social media channels and of course rugbyrenegade.com thanks for listening to the rugby renegade podcast for more quality rugby strength and conditioning information check us out at rugbyrenegade.com rugby renegade built Building machines.